Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. And as you can see by the illustration, we are still have as our main subject the high priest garments representing Jesus, our great high priest. And we're at that point we began this morning and looking at these precious stones that were on the breastplate of the high priest representing the 12 tribes. And so Genesis chapter 49, and we want to read verses 13, 14, and 15. Zebulon shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his brother shall adjoin Sidon, S-I-D-O-N, or Z-I-D-O-N. Sometimes it's referred to as that. Issachar is a strong donkey, lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good, and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden, and became a band of slaves. Now, in part six of our examination of these high priest garments, we want to remind ourselves that these precious stones stands for the twelve tribes of Israel, and they are in the order that are given in Numbers chapter 10. Rather than their order of birth, and even rather than the order in which Jacob prophesied to them in Genesis chapter 49. And so now we come to the third and fourth Issachar and Zebulon that we want to look at, having studied Judah this morning. Represented by the topaz and the carbuncle. Said this morning, I don't want to get into specifics regarding the actual stones. Uh, I do not want to try to extract every fine detail out of everything I can find. You could do that, but I won't. By the way, I, I should say that as well as this Genesis 49, where Jacob uh, gives the patriarchal blessing, which was a series of prophecies and compliments and criticisms and things to his sons, the sons of Israel, when you go to Deuteronomy 33, you find that Moses is doing something similar to the tribes of Israel. The sons has now grown to be tribes. And before Moses dies on Mount Nebo, uh, then before they would go into the promised land, he prophesies to them as well. But again, I, I may just slightly refer to some of those in our, on our take on this. Again, for reasons that I don't want to go into every single thing. But enough so that we can understand at least to the best of our knowledge what Jacob is prophesying to his sons in Genesis 49. Now, it says, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Now, the unusual circumstances of Issachar's birth uh, can be found in Genesis chapter 30. Now, let me just recap slightly here. Leah, uh, who was the uh, first wife of Jacob, Remember, uh, he married two. Rachel was the one he really, really loved. 
and uh, his uncle Laban tricked him into marrying Leah, but he wound up with both of them. And uh, Leah had already by this time borne four sons to Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And Rachel could barely stand that. And so she reels on Jacob and comes up with the idea that she would give to Jacob her handmaiden, Bilhah, to have children by her for her, as a surrogate for her, on her behalf. And so Jacob, uh, he accepts the offer, and it ends up then that Bilhah also then has two sons to Jacob, uh, Dan and Naphtali. And remember that Rachel is still barren by this time. She has no children of her own. Leah then, having seen her do that, she wants to get into the act. And so she then offers her handmaiden, Zilpah, to Jacob to have children also on her behalf. He takes up the offer, and she has two children, uh, Gad and Asher. And so by this time then, Leah had given Jacob four sons through herself and two sons through her maid, Rachel, still barren, had given Jacob two more sons by her mate. Now, you would have thought that this unseemly rivalry between these two women would have stopped there, wouldn't you? But actually it didn't. In fact, it got worse. And it was about to become even more fraught in this household. Now, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 30. Because this is what happens here in Genesis chapter 30. And this is how Issachar comes to be born. Verse 14, it says, Now Reuben, who was a son of Leah, the firstborn to Jacob, now Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field, and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now what are mandrakes? Mandrakes were small, beautiful, highly perfumed flowers. But what was important about the mandrakes, and what was attractive to Rachel about the mandrakes, was they were reported to have uh, medicinal powers, especially for a woman who was infertile. So, that's why Rachel is highly attracted to these mandrakes. But she said to her, Leah said to Rachel, she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. Now, let's just stop there. I mean, you can hardly believe what you're reading here. This woman, Rachel, who's born, is so desperate to have a child that she will do anything to get her hands on these mandrakes, thinking, if I can just get these mandrakes, maybe, maybe, my days of barrenness will be over. And so she makes a proposal to Leah. And it's evident, obviously, 
that Jacob and Leah had not been together for a while. So she makes this offer. Why don't, why don't I just allow my husband to come to you tonight? Uh, and, and for that, uh, as, as a bargain and chip for that, give me your son's mandrakes. And Rachel said, therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a, a very dysfunctional, unseemly family, isn't it? I mean, this is just, it's not good, sure it's not. And he lay with her that night. So he took up the offer, and he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages or my reward. God has given me my wages because she called his name Issachar. And Issachar has got to do with this bargain that she made. Issachar's name means to reward or to hire for payment. So poor Issachar is going to be stuck with his name for the rest of his life. I happened because of a bargain. <laughs> I happened because of some flowers. But that's what she called him, Issachar, because of the bargaining over these mandrakes. And so Jacob now is going to speak prophetic words over this son Issachar which we have just read in Genesis 49, verses 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. Now, Issachar's allotment, his portion of land that he was given when they finally came into the promised land, was a very, very fertile uh, piece of land. But it required strong shoulders and hard labor to reap the benefits. When it says about donkeys here, donkeys, you understand, of course, in those days were the normal mode of a beast of burden. I mean, their work was done by donkeys. Travel usually was by donkeys as well. So they were the beast of burdens in those days. And the two donkeys, the two burdens, rather, as mentioned here, may simply refer to the to the two packs of burdens that would be on each side of the back of the donkey. You've all seen photographs or in movies, the old donkey going up the road with the two burdens either side of it, like a, like a pack mule either side. So it may mean that, or it, it may be referring to the geographical area in which they had their land, because it was between Mount Tabor in the north and Mount Gilboa in the south. So maybe that was referring to those two great mountains, the great burdens, and they were between them. We're not exactly sure. But anyway, what we do know is that hard work and rest, laying down, says, seeing that the rest was good, implies rest and reward for the labor. Rest and reward for the labor. Hard work is honorable, isn't it? Hard work is honorable. The Bible admonishes us 
to work, to be diligent, to be enterprising. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, listen to what it says. Paul writing said, verse 10, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So work is something that is very honorable. Now, of course, you can come to a point where you're out of work. You can come to a point through illness or sickness or layoffs or redundancy, whatever. You may be out of a job. That's fair enough. But this time, about people whose whole lifestyle. And let me tell you, in Great Britain today, there's millions whose lifestyle is they just will not work for any reason. Paul says, don't let them eat. That would be a big motivator, wouldn't it? <laughs> And so work is something that is very, very honorable indeed. Jesus was very diligent in his work, which was the saving of men's souls, ministering to human beings. He's very, very diligent. He said that he had to work while it was yet day, for the night comes when no man can work. I don't know if you ever think about when you read through the Gospels, because we tend to speed read through things, but if you just stop sometimes and just, just begin to think of the logistics of, of, of a day in the life of Jesus, the places he went, the people he ministered to, the time they got up, the time they finally went to bed. I mean, some of his days were so jam-packed you could not believe how hard he worked. No wonder he fell asleep on the boat. He was exhausted. He was physically worn out with all the effort and the labor. And he did it day after day after day after day. There was times when he just had to get a rest. And he said, let's come apart for a while. And even when he did that, the people still followed him. And he still ministered to them. You, You read that in the Gospels. And so in that three and a half years of Jesus' ministry on earth, it was absolutely packed with labor and with effort and with working and going and doing. and I mean, the, the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel of the servant in it. When you read the Gospel of Mark, he's always doing something, going somewhere. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. He talked about the harvest fields are white, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he may send forth laborers end of the harvest field. You and I have got to be diligent in our work for the Master also. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You should take your concordance and see how many times you see the word labor. It's used a lot in Scripture. Whether it's talking about physical labor as a, as a job 
to keep body and soul together or whether it's talking about the work of God. It's labor. It's labor intensive. <laughs> you see preachers on Sunday preaching for 45 minutes. Let me tell you something. That generally is the easiest part of the week. Certainly is the most enjoyable for the preacher, but it's the easiest part of the week. It's all the other stuff. It's all the other effort to get for that 45 minutes that you do not see, and why should you see that, and why should you really care about that? I suppose that's the preacher's job. But it's work, and it's effort, and it's prayer, and it's searching, and it's soul-searching, and it's, it's just... It's a different life. It's a different world, let me tell you. And unless you're a preacher, you would have absolutely no idea in the world what that's like. <laughs> but that's, that's the labor. That's what it is. These people here are worship band. They come in here Saturday after Saturday after Saturday after Saturday. The sun can be split in the trees. What are they doing? They're here going through songs, preparing for Sunday, getting things ready. So when you come in on Sunday and you join in the worship and it flows and it goes, you think, well, that's easy. No, it's not a bit easy. They just make it look easy. But it's not easy when you have to give up your time and your effort to do all of these things. You think it's easy putting all those boxes together during the week? <laughs> tough, tough work, let me tell you. Think it's easy filling a container? See, the kingdom of God requires labors to be diligent. And so there's hard work involved. But then there's rest. There's these two things. In Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about rest. In Hebrews chapter 4, he mentions Israel in the Old Testament had not really entered into the rest that God had for them through their unbelief and so forth. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, there, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered into his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. I'm talking about those in the Old Testament. And so there is a rest, a spiritual rest for the people of God. Now there is a rest in the work of God on earth. In spite of all of the labor and all of the sweat and all of the work, there's a spiritual rest in the midst of it. But there's a greater rest. There's an eternal rest. And there's a rest that awaits the people of God. And after all of your labor on earth is done and it's over and it's finished, and we say goodbye to this world, we enter into an eternal rest. Now, that doesn't mean you're lying about in a fluffy cloud and a big pillow playing a harp. <laughs> some people think well that's what heaven's going to be like no we've got big responsibilities that's another story but it'll be different because we'll be energized by the power of God 
will have a new energy and a new life. In Hebrews chapter 14, sorry, Revelation chapter 14. Verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, said the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. And so there is a rest for the people of God. But there's rewards for the people of God. There's rewards. Hard work brings its own rewards, don't you know? And if we're diligent in our service for the king, I can promise you, according to the word of God, there are rewards that await us. Do you know there's five different crowns the Bible speaks about for us? If we're diligent in our service to the king, that there are crowns that await us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, towards the end of that chapter, Verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we for an imperishable, an incorruptible crown, the AV says. Therefore I Run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So in other words, if we are temperate in all things, if we look after self and do what's right with ourselves, so that we may serve God better, more effectively, more efficiently. God sees that, and there's a reward of a crown for that. And Paul says it's an incorruptible crown. It's an imperishable crown. And then in, in James, little book of James, Hebrew James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, or that's a trial that you're going through. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When you go through fierce trials of affliction, that you think you're never going to make it, but you remain true and faithful in spite of it all, God marks it. And James says there's a crown of life will await you. Then 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse, well, let me see, verse 19. 
For what is our hope or joy? Or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. This crown of rejoicing is the soul winner's crown. There's a crown for those who win souls. This is what Paul said. In fact, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy, my crown, to stand fast in the Lord, beloved. So Paul was very conscious that when he won people to the Lord, that he would receive a crown for that. Have you ever, ever won somebody to Christ? If you have, there's a crown awaits the soul winner. There's another good reason to win somebody to the Lord, isn't it? 2 Timothy chapter 4. Two Timothy chapter four, verse six. Remember, Paul's writing this now at the end of his life. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering; the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight; I have finished the race; I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will give to me on that day. Note this. And not to me only, but also all those who have loved his appearing. <laughs> For those who live their lives in the light of his appearing, there is a crown of righteousness awaits. So there's lots of crowns. There's another one left here. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Sorry to be personal about this, but that's the one I'm after. That's the one earmark for me if I get it. Because all my works will be tested so by fire. But that's what I'm looking for. God promises me if I am faithful to you, if I am faithful to feed you the word of God as your shepherd, the chief shepherd will give me the crown of glory. That's a good reason to keep on, isn't it? That's a good reason to keep at it and not to quit.
because there's a crown that awaits. And then, here's a difficult passage. It says, He became a band of slaves. The AV says, A servant unto tribute. Now, the reason why I say this is difficult because it seems so out of character. This tribe is hardworking, diligent. Remember whenever Deborah was fighting with Yabin and, and, and Sisera, his great warlord? Uh, whenever she was fighting at that time, these are some of the people, this particular tribe, were some of the people that came and fought with her and fought valiantly to win that battle. So there were strong people. There were hard-working people. There were courageous people. But it would appear that at some point, at some time or other, for some reason or other, it would appear that they stopped fighting to guard the possessions that God had given them. And all of the rewards of their hard labor, and there was much, at some point it seems to be that they stopped fighting to keep it. See, they were surrounded by Arab bands who would come in and raid them because it was a very fertile area. And maybe they get tired of fighting. Maybe they get tired of defending. And maybe they thought to themselves, well, we have got a lot. We have many resources. Rather than all this fighting, why don't we just pay them some tribute? Why don't we just give them something? Get them off our backs. Why don't we just compromise instead of fighting? But here's the trouble with that. The trouble with compromise, it eventually leads to slavery. What you compromise in will eventually enslave you, spiritually speaking. What we compromise to keep spiritually will end up controlling us. And somewhere in their history, they slackened off. They stopped fighting. They stopped defending. They took it easy. And they just started to pay tribute. How many knows when you give in just a little bit to the devil, he's never going to be satisfied. <laughs> and every little bit you give in, he's going to look a bit more and more and more and more until you become a slave to that. On a more positive note, First Chronicles 12.32, here's what it says about the sons of Issachar. The sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And that's nice. Who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Do you have understanding of the times we're living in? Does our worldview match up with God's view of the world? Because it's very, very different. Are we a voice for God and a voice for good? Or are we just an echo of all the other voices that we hear around us? 
As believers today, we need to know the difference between the world and the Word. We need to know the difference. Do you know what I'm discovering? I'm discovering that there is multitudes of believers and they know every pop song on the charts and they know every movie there is in the movie house and they don't know the Word of God. They couldn't read you a verse. Their whole life, apart from coming to the church, is taken up with Big Brother and the Axe Factor and a thousand other million things that's out there. And they know nothing about this Word of God. Nothing. Nothing. And that's a tragedy. And it's, it's a tragedy for the modern day church, let me tell you. Do we understand the times we're living in? Do we take our lead from the world? Do we become like the world? Do we act like the world? Do we live like the world? Do we think like the world? Sometimes you look at the church, you look at the world, and you don't know the difference. You just don't know the difference. You don't know the difference. Because we do the same things. We talk the same way. We act the same way. And the world looks at it and thinks, well, what's this Christianity business? Because I don't see any difference in your life than my life. <laughs> Sad, isn't it? We need to know the times and understand the times we're living in. You know, I, I preach about the second coming in here. Sometimes I think I'm preaching to that wall. Honestly, I really do sometimes think I'm preaching to that wall. Because we live as if the Lord's not going to come for the next 500 years. Honestly. Say, David, you're a bit hard on me tonight. It's a good job I'm not the Apostle Paul then. <laughs> Wouldn't like him for your pastor. So we need to know the world that we're living in. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, he said, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You know why he said that? He says, you can look up and you say, well, there's the red sky. Well, that means this, and there's the red sky in the morning. That means that. He says, you can discern what the weather's going to be by looking at the sky. But he says, you can't discern the times. He says, you have no idea about the times you're living in. We know everything of everything except the times we're living in. But the time is short. I'm conscious sometimes when I preach about the Middle East and all the stuff that's... I'm conscious sometimes right over your head. Some of you is right over your head. So who cares? I don't live there. Look at it. Read about it. Watch it on TV. That's telling you the Lord's coming. And He's coming very soon. That's what that's telling you. That's making the Bible come alive. That's making prophecy. You're seeing prophecy happening before your very eyes. Open your eyes and see it. Now, that's Issachar. Quickly, Zebulun. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Zebulun means dwelling. That's what the name means. This was Leah's sixth son to Jacob. Whenever he was born, here's what she said. God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me. Because he hadn't been dwelling with her. been dwelling with Rachel. Well, he visited her from time to time. That's when she had all those babies. 
But he wasn't dwelling with her. It's dwelling with Rachel. She says, Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon, which means dwelling. Didn't happen actually, but she was hopeful. She was hopeful. Now Jacob's prophecy about Zebulon is short, but it's enlightening. For what he tells him, it would appear, and he did, become a maritime trading people. Their allotment of land seemed to straddle between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea at the port of Sidon, which was a great trading port. Not only that, but there was a, an ancient trading highway that would come down right through their land. And that would also be indicative of them being traitors. In Deuteronomy 33, when Moses prophetically speaks to the tribes, I'll just mention this little bit. Deuteronomy 33, 19, when he came to Zebulon, he said, they shall suck of the abundance of the seas and treasures hidden in the sand. And so there was something about these people that would be maritime, that would be interested in shipping and trading and shipping lanes and trading on land and trading on sea. They would suck the abundance of the seas and the treasures hidden in the sand. Now notice how these sons, and this is only the third one I've mentioned, but notice already how different they all are. All these siblings are all different. Now, isn't that the true in any family? Anybody who's got more than one child, even if you only have two, you'll know they're very, very different, except unless they're twins. And even some twins, unless they're identical twins, are very, very different. Certainly, Jacob and Esau were very, very different, weren't they? It couldn't be more different. And so, there is a difference. And... As sons and daughters of God, we too are very different. We're very different in our talents, very different in our temperaments, very different in our personalities, very different individually. We have all different ways about us, and we're all very, very individual and different. Just that every individual stone in the breastplate was different, and as each one shone with a different luster, so you and I, as sons and daughters of of Almighty God are different and individual. And that's good, isn't it? That's the wonderful thing. You know, over the years, because many of you have been with us for many, many years, we've got to know your personalities and you've got to know mine and our quirks and our strange little bits and, uh, <laughs> you know, our temperaments and, you know, what we like and what we dislike and what makes us tick and what doesn't make us tick, what ticks us off and all the rest of it. We, we know that about each other because we're all so different. And yet, amazingly, God can take us all in our differences and varieties and He can work us all together and make us one in Christ. And that's the lovely thing about it. Not a great deal is spoken about the tribe of Zebulon in Scripture, but there are a couple of places that just gives us a little bit of an insight uh, into who these people were. Now, I remember we said a moment ago in Joshua 4 and 5, this great battle uh, with Yabin and, and Sisera and, uh, and Deborah and Barak. 
And uh, how that this was fought in the valley of Jezreel, which actually was in Zebulon's territory. And so word was sent out before the battle to, to all the tribes to come and get involved because this was a big battle this was going to be. So Deborah sent word out to the tribes and some of them came, some didn't come. Some uh, immediately says, yes, we're ready for this. Others says, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to get involved in that. And so at the end of the great battle, when the battle was won, Deborah, under the inspiration of God, she composes a great song, and she sings the song of Deborah. And if you care to read that song, you'll see that she condemns and criticizes those who fail to come to the battle, and she compliments and commends those who rose to the challenge. And when she said about Zebulon and Joshua, Sorry, in Judges 5, 12 and 18, here's what she said in verse 18 of Judges 5. Zebulon is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. So the tribe of Zebulon were courageous and brave and was prepared to jeopardize their very lives for the cause. This act of unselfish bravery and courage is one of the characteristics of the church of Jesus Christ in the lands today where the believers are being persecuted even unto death. There are many men and women who are quite prepared to face death if necessary for the cause of Christ. We are so far removed from that that we can't even fathom it. Sure we can't. Can't even begin to imagine what it must be like to live every single day of your life as a Christian thinking this could be my last day on earth. Or this could be the day they'll pick me up and they'll throw me in jail and my wife and children will never ever see me ever again. And yet every day of their lives they're prepared for that. Let's say the cause is worth it. Jesus is worth it. He died for me. If necessary, I'll die for him. There's a counterpart of this in Acts 15 and 26. Whenever the Jerusalem council was given a report about Paul and Barnabas, they said, Paul and Barnabas, men who have hazarded, who has risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Not that you would go out of your way to be a martyr, but there's a special place of recognition in heaven for martyrs. You can see it in the book of Revelation. Who are these who are dressed in white? <laughs> these are the ones who laid down their life. Now God may never call us to lay down our lives in a physical way. We may never ever know what real persecution is. But I got a sneaky feeling by watching the news and seeing the laws that are passed. I got a sneaky feeling that those days are fast approaching whenever we're going to feel some persecution. So 
what's going to happen. It is happening. There's going to be laws passed are being passed. Our current coalition government has said that by 2012 they're going to make it law for gay marriages, not civil unions, but gay marriages. But they said churches will be exempt from doing that if they so desire. Don't you believe it? First step was civil marriages. Next step will be legal marriages. Third step will be the churches. You better do it. You have to do this or you'll be prosecuted. That'll be the next step. So us preachers could be hauled off. You could be visiting me in jail before it's over. I'm serious. Not that I'd be looking forward to that. But these things can happen. They're happening in other nations. I know a guy in Burma, Myanmar, Robin. Some of you see him on Facebook. Robin has been arrested many, many times. He's been followed on buses, taxis, trains, everywhere. Been arrested. His church has been closed down. He goes somewhere else. He starts them up again. They come. They close them down. He starts them up. That's just a few hours on a plane from here. But these men were prepared. They jeopardized their very lives. They took the risk. Another characteristic of Zebulon. Whenever David was calling for a an army to come together in First Chronicles 12. Verse 33 mentions different tribes, but in verse 33 it says, Of Zebulon there were 50,000 who went out to battle, expert in war, with all weapons of war, stout-hearted. The authorized version says it this way, They were not of double heart. Men who could keep rank. They were not of double heart. Being single-minded can be a tremendous asset, especially in the kingdom of God. If, if we're single-minded about the right things, of course. Paul says, this one thing I do, single-minded, James said, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You don't know where you are with a double-minded man. He's constantly flip-flopping. One day he's for, one day he's against. One day he's up, one day he's down. One day he feels like it, one day he doesn't. You never know. But be single-minded. Jesus was very, very single-minded. He said to his disciples, I must needs go through Samaria. They were amazed that he would even want to get near Samaria. The despised Samaritans, why would he want to do that? He says, I must needs go through Samaria. <laughs> he had a little woman at a well to meet. He was single-minded. Nothing was going to stop him. I must work the works I must work the works of him while it is day, the night comes when no man can work. The Bible says that he set his face as a flint towards Jerusalem. 
single-minded, could not be deterred. Paul's like that too. He says, why are you crying? Why are you, break? Why, why are you weeping and breaking your heart? He says, I, listen, I, I know where I'm going. He says, I, I know what's going to happen. Bonds and chains await me. Holy Spirit's really told me that. I know that's just what I'm going for, but he couldn't be stopped. <laughs> couldn't be stopped. What a characteristic for us to have, to be single-minded in our desire to serve the Lord, to be a believer for Christ, to walk this walk, to be single-minded, not to be sidetracked and distracted and one day up and one day down and one day I want to go to church, next day I don't want to, just to be single-minded. You don't have to feel like it to be single-minded. You just do it. You just do it. It says men who could keep rank. Men who could keep rank. They would look along the ranks. Not one would move. Not one would be out of position. You know, that's what is needed in the army, isn't it? Especially if they're facing a foe. You know, anybody turning back, you want them to stand and wait the orders to the orders given. In rank, in row, nobody moving, everybody standing shoulder to shoulder to the orders given. <laughs> It'd be great if it's like that in church, Clifford, wouldn't it? Sad to say it isn't. People come, people go. They get mad at you. They get mad at somebody else. Somebody gets mad at them. And they come and they go, back and forth, up and down, in and out. But there are a bunch of people. You've been here for donkey's years. And you've stood shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> After 32 years, you're still here, shoulder to shoulder. And that's what you build church with. Can I say something? Not everybody that comes to church is building material. I hope that doesn't offend you, me saying that. But not everybody comes to church is building material. And while they come, you're gracious and you're nice, but can't build doesn't want to be locked shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> want to be able to step out and step in when it sits, when it pleases, when it's convenient, if you feel like it. Can't build with that. You can only build with those who keep rank. And thank God there's a bunch of people in here who's kept rank. <laughs> or I wouldn't be standing here tonight if you didn't. But you've kept rank. And we're keeping rank. And more are joining the ranks. And more are joining shoulder to shoulder to get this job done. Amen? I haven't time tonight, but you could read the passages in Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. You could read all of those about the various gifts within the body and so forth. And there's, there's variety and individuality and all of that. But all work together for the edification of the one body. So there is Zebulun, and there is Issachar, and there this morning is Judah. And as we go on, that not be next Sunday morning because we've got our special speaker, but as we go on, we're going to see more and more and more.
and see what applies to us. What applies to me? Don't, not what applies to the other person beside me, but what applies to me? Where do I fit in? Which stone am I? <laughs> because you're one of these stones. Or you're maybe two or three of these stones, actually. You're part of what we're sharing. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do bless you that you have made us so very different. And we thank you for that variety that is in the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we're all made in so many different ways, our temperaments, our talents, our abilities, our personalities. And yet somehow you can make us into one body. Lord, it's a mystery and it's a miracle. But you do it. And you're building up a holy temple. Not only are we a body, but we're a temple where the stones are fitly joined together. So we give you thanks for that. So Lord, help us, Lord, as we go about our business this week, that we serve you efficiently and effectively and diligently. And Lord, we do all that is necessary to expand the wonderful kingdom of God before Christ returns to this earth. Lord, we're very conscious that that day is fast approaching. We're conscious, Lord, that there's a shaking among the nations. And Lord, it's all pointing to one thing, that Jesus is coming back. Lord, help us to live in the light of that and to be ready for it. That you will be glorified through us. And that we will give you the honor and we will praise you for all that you've done and for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.